<coughs> Did you hear that? Is it the horror comedy podcast with Jake and Haley? Oh my god, it is. This podcast intended for inhalation only. And that means it's not for kids. Huge thank you to Patrick D. Ortega for the intro song. It's called Assassin, and you can find it on his website, patrickdortega.com. It's Wednesday. It's Haley. It's the Horror Comedy Podcast. It's going to be a smaller episode than usual today. Wednesday's my day off from my other job, so really I just wanted to do something fun, share some stories with you guys, get super stoned, and get really scared together. You're also super invited to send your scary stories to our Instagram page, which is THC Podcast, or our email address, which is thehorrorcomedypodcast at gmail.com. It can be anything. Um, honestly, cryptids are scary. Fucking stalkers are scary. Police fucking brutality is really scary. Um, I just want to take a second and say Black Lives Matter. I'm going to leave some links in our show notes today for the George Floyd Memorial Fund, the Raise the Degree petition, and the bail project if you can donate or sign or share and help to spread these voices that need to be heard and help collect resources that need to be gathered if you donate or sign these petitions please take a screenshot and send it to us and we'll shout you out on the podcast i think it's really important right now to use our white privilege to amplify black voices and to really take a stand not the time to be silent so with all that's going on in the world um, and with that being said i think we should as a family, sit down and get the shit scared out of us. Let's have some scarapy, you guys. Today I'm going to do a dab of Black Ice Live Diamonds. No idea what that means. Kind of sounds like a Beatles song. <coughs> okay, I think I just died. <coughs> Two men in long black trench coats follow you into the supermarket. Aside from the coats, they wear wide-brimmed fedoras and mirrored sunglasses. They each have hockey stick sideburns that jet toward the corners of their mouths and black leather gloves on their hands. You don't know how long they've been following you or where they picked you up, but you are suddenly, fully, completely aware of them. Your heart sinks. The baby is strapped to your chest in a wrap sling, yet you hug him tighter, covering his small white head with one hand. It is a warm, soft ball, and you can feel his pulse thudding vaguely in his temples as he sleeps. Your hand is bigger than his whole head. That is good. You don't want the men in the trench coats to see him. Or you. You lose them somewhere down the canned goods aisle. You know this because you can no longer hear their dry, palm-slap footfalls. You can no longer feel those mirrored sunglasses sizing you up behind your back. Absently, you continue to fill your grocery cart, but you're not really paying attention now. You think, I made a mistake. Ma'am? He is a teenager, brown-skinned, pimply, bespectacled, and he smiles with oversized teeth while he bags your groceries. His name tag says Byron. Help bring these to your car, ma'am? You shake your head. You can manage on your own. Thinking, when did I become a ma'am? Thinking, Byron, bad name. The woman ringing you up at the register smiles broadly and looks instantly like something out of a fairy tale about distrustful cats. What little darling, she purrs. Boy or girl? Boy, you say. How old? Instinctively, you hug him tighter to your breast. Again, you're thinking of the men in the coats. Three months. The woman's smile widens. Inwardly, you cringe. What's the sweetie's name? You tell her. That, says a woman, is a beautiful name. Before leaving, you glance around one last time for the men in the black coat. They are no longer there. Suddenly, you are overcome by embarrassment, by the shame of paranoia. You nearly laugh, you are so relieved. Because you were wrong. Because no one was there to begin with. I have made a mistake. You strap the baby in his car seat in the back of the van. 
He wakes only briefly to work his mouth around soundless cries, his gray eyes blinking like castanets. You slide the door shut and dig through your purse for your car keys, but you can't find them. Panic slides a cold barb around your heart. Ridiculous conspiracy theories threaten to tear you apart. You rush to the door and tug on it, expecting it to be locked. Horrible images of asphyxiation and blinking colorless eyes shuttling through your mind, but it slides open with a groan. Gray eyes peep out at you. Pink fists jut through Oshkosh sleeves. There are giraffes on the sleeves, pandas on the plush insert of the car seat. You smile and think, it's a jungle in there, kiddo. You say, hey there. Say, hey there, big boy. Say, who's mommy's big boy? Thinking, this is the funniest thing in the world. Michael would be laughing his head off right now. Michael would be calling me his paranoid pretty and would be laughing his head off. Nice one, girl. And they are there in your hand, the car keys. Back home, you breastfeed while the TV sits on mute. Michael said to expect them around 7, and it's still early, but you're not the greatest cook in the world, and this is a big dinner. Promotion at work. Michael works hard. His boss, his boss's wife. Michael promised to bring a bottle of wine, a nice wine. You don't know the difference between nice wines and not nice wines, except to watch the faces of those who drink the wine. But you're not worried about Michael and his wine. You're thinking about his boss and his boss's wife. Their names. You wrote them down on the back of an envelope, but now you can't remember where you put it. The baby finishes suckling and begins to whine. You pick him up, dress him over one shoulder, thump his back with an open hand. You go into the kitchen, eyes darting about the countertop. The groceries are still splayed out. The grocery bags on the floor. No envelope. No name. The baby burps. It's like a ghost vacating his tiny body. You kiss his head, holding him close to you. You are suddenly so close to tears, you're frightened. The envelope. The fucking envelope. It's on the refrigerator. Strawberry magnet. There you go. You whisper into your baby's ear. See that? There we go. No sweat. Tony and Eliza Sanderson. Great block letters, all capitals, and felt marker. You wrote it last night in the bathroom after Michael told you, because you didn't want to forget. This is important to Michael, this dinner. It's now three o'clock, and you put the baby down for his nap. He goes willingly, already asleep before you set him in his crib. Cartoon lions with bushy brown manes caper on the screen, and there is a mobile above the crib with colorful felt airplanes hanging from it. The room smells of baby powder, desitin, ammoniac wet wipes, and the crib those pink fists uncurl. The baby snores his tiny snores, and you're already fretting about dinner. You've done this before, though you're not the greatest cook. You prep the roast, adorn it with spices and cloves, set it in the pan, preheat the oven. You decide to do scalloped potatoes, but fuck it all. They come out looking like grimaces, and you can't stand to look at them. So you smash them up in a ceramic dish, and voila! They're mashed potatoes. You use your mother's recipe for green bean casserole, following the instructions like someone assembling a rocket, reading every line three or four times because you're terrified of getting it wrong. 29 minutes. Behind you, the oven buzzes, opens. Food goes in. You're sweating but feeling good. Things are cooking now. (laughs) Thinking, Tony and Eliza, Tony and Eliza, Tony and Eliza, Tony and Eliza. Outside, a shape passes before one of the kitchen windows. You freeze. Your first thought, those men from the grocery store. Your second thought, the baby. You rush to the baby's room, but he has not been disturbed. The shades are drawn over the nursery windows so you can't see out. But some instinct inside you tells you that they are out there, walking around your house, trying to find a way in. Suddenly, you wonder if you locked the front door. Racing to the foyer, you make enough noise to wake the dead. You even utter a weak groan when you strike the front door and find that it's locked. It's been locked all along. 
Sweating, you listen, one ear against the door, but cannot hear anything. If there are men in trench coats circumnavigating the house, they are very good at remaining very good. Or, or I made a mistake, you think. You bring your hands up to rub the sweat out of your eyes, but when you look down, you are terrified to see the fine silver hairs sprouting from your palms. So much it looks like you are grasping balls of very fine wire. You scream, but there is nothing there. Your hands are fine. A trick of the light, a trick of the eye. Paranoid pretty, indeed. Something smells. It's bad. In the kitchen, something burns. God damn it. You rush in, and it's the potatoes. Stupidly, you left a piece of paper towel stuck to the bottom of the ceramic dish. It burns as you fan pillars of smoke away from the mouth of the oven. At the sink, you wash your hands, examining for fine silver hairs. But you are okay. You're not a monster. You cook. Check, baby. Check windows for swarthy figures. You're able to do this calmly and simply now because you think of it as a routine. You think, lather, wash, repeat, and try to keep from giggling. You think Tony and Eliza, and you make a little song out of it in your head to the tune of Frankie and Johnny. I actually don't know what that is, sorry. The food is cooking now, really cooking. With Michael's wine, it promises to be a fine evening. You set the table and actually feel good about how it looks. Outside, the stoop is darkened as the sun sinks below the distant trees. You go into the bathroom and begin to take a shower. But midway through the process, lather, wash, repeat. You panic about leaving the baby in his crib with those strange men outside. Naked, wet, soapy, you grab the baby from his crib, wrap him in his blue moose blanket, and set him on the bathroom rug. You shower with the shower curtain open so you can keep an eye on him, keeping the water cold so the steam won't make it difficult for him to breathe. He has tiny lungs. There, you say in his ear when you are all done. Mommy's all done. She's going to dress now. Dress and look pretty. And you feel his heartbeat echoing in his tiny skull. In the bedroom, a man stands just beyond the window looking in. It is dark out now, but you can see him clearly. He's dressed all in black, his white ghost face seeming to hover in the air just beyond the window pane. No, you say, holding the baby against your wet nakedness. What do you want? The figure says nothing does not move. Leave us alone. The figure does not leave you alone. It takes all your strength, but you manage to cross the bedroom to the window and pull the curtain closed. You can almost hear the stranger's heartbeat on the other side of the glass. Still clutching the baby to your body, you go to the nightstand and pick up the phone. You dial 911. Listen to the rings. But when a woman's voice answers, you hang up. Because you're overreacting. Because, okay, Maybe you're jealous of Michael a little too, and jealous of his taste in wine and his promotion and his Tony and Eliza and 911 is your sabotage to the dinner party. But that's not true either. Not really. Jealousy is just what you told the doctor because you had to tell him something. You dress, put your makeup on, examine yourself in the mirror. Your breasts have gotten so big, but so have your hips. Relatable. Your skin looks grayer somehow. You think of old photos of Jewish corpses stacked like cured meats. Could just be the lousy bathroom lighting. Briefly, you contemplate changing out all the light bulbs, but you don't think you'd have enough time before Michael comes home with your guests. Still wrapped in his blue moose blanket, you set the baby back in the crib and smooth the fine hairs off his forehead. Soft, warm ball. Chest rises with respiration. And you are suddenly overwhelmed by your love for this little creature, this amalgam of you and Michael, of the successful attorney and the paranoid pretty. Something stinks. Oh, you whisper over the baby, eyes wide. The kitchen. Stricken, you rush into the kitchen, fearing the worst. But the food looks fine, and it's almost done. It's just the smell. It seems to curdle in your nose and turn into solid waste in your lungs. You rush to your kitchen sink and gag into the basin. A foamy snake spirals out of your throat. 
After catching your breath, you run the water and wait as your hot, prickling skin goes back to normal. When Michael comes home, you're sitting in the living room in the dark, sick to your stomach. The doorknob jiggles, and you can hear people talking on the stoop. Then the first thing you think of is the man with the ghost face looking in your bedroom window. Hi, hon, Michael says. He's beaming, looking handsome in a camel hair suit and a shimmering red tie. He clutches a bottle of what you assume is a nice wine. Oh, you look beautiful. You greet him with a kiss on the cheek as his boss and boss's wife file into your house. They are much younger and handsomer than you picture them, Tony and Eliza, like a couple straight out of a glamour magazine. You think of horrible light bulbs and sallow graying skin and are suddenly intimidated by these beautiful people. Tony and Eliza brought the wine, Michael says, carrying the bottle over to the wine bar at the far end of the room. Dark in here, he flicks on the light switch as he goes. Makes you folks a drink? The Sandersons agree that a glass of wine would be nice. Tony shakes your hand and Eliza smiles and looks suddenly hideous. How do you think this woman was beautiful only moments ago? Food smells wonderful, Eliza says. Her teeth are like the dented grill of a truck. It does, Tony says. He has silver hair at his temples and you quickly hide your hands behind your back in case that silver hair is contagious. Michael returns with a glass of wine for Tony and Eliza. You guys make yourself at home, Michael tells them, motioning towards the love seat. To you, Michael says, where's my little munchkin? In the crib, you say. I'll wake him and introduce you, Michael says to the Sandersons. Oh, says Eliza Sanderson. I've been dying to see him. And when Michael leaves, Eliza turns to you and says, Is there anything I can do to help you, dear? You say no. You look wonderful, says Eliza. That's a gorgeous dress. She winks, this aging Medusa. I can't believe you just had a baby. Tony just smiles and enjoys his wine. Your stomach curdles. The smells from the kitchen are making you sick. You think, I made a mistake. Think, Byron is a bad name. Maybe there are men outside. Maybe there aren't. Maybe you're jealous of Michael, just like you told the doctor. Or maybe that's not true either. You don't know. You wish Michael had never turned on the light switch and that you knew what wine was nice wine and that it didn't take you 29 minutes to read the six lines on the casserole recipe because you had to make sure you got it right, got it right, got it right. This is new to you. All of it. Three months new. Michael comes up behind you, but doesn't come down into the living room. You don't look at him. You feel him at your back like mirrored sunglasses. Eliza Sanderson cocks her head at a strange angle and stares past you up to Michael. Tony Sanderson looks as well, and the expression on his face convinces you he smells how awful the food is, too. You turn. Michael stands there with a quizzical look on his face, a mixture of confusion and bemusement, like someone who knows a joke has been told, though he's missed the punchline. He stands there with the blue moose blanket in one hand and what can only be an uncooked pot roast in the other. And he says, is this some kind of... Um, I made a mistake, you say. Hun? Honey? You sit on the couch and smile politely at the Sandersons. In the kitchen, the oven's buzzer goes off. And that is a story called The Dinner Party from the book We Should Have Left Well Enough Alone by Ronald Malfi. It's a bunch of short stories. They're all scary. <coughs> I did just spill something. It's a book of short horror stories. Every single one is just as riveting and scary as that one is. So fucking check that shit out. This is a story from the random board of 4chan. It's in green text, so I'm going to rephrase to make it a little bit more radio friendly. At the time of the story, I'm eight and home by myself. My grandma is out on a date. 
and I'm watching Pokemon in the living room. That kind of sounds like an ideal day in my opinion, but whatever. I'm having a great time when I hear a tapping on the window. I look back through the window and I see a man. What the fuck? I flip my little eight-year-old lid and I back the fuck up and he shatters the window. I drop my Pokemon cards I was holding and I nope the fuck out. I run as fast as I can to my great-grandpa's house, four houses down from ours, and I tell him what happened. He obviously calls the fucking cops and we go back there and the guy is gone. The police do find something among all the cards that I dropped and they hand it to my great-grandpa. He starts to tear up a little bit and he hugs me really close to him. My grandma finally comes home and we tell her. My great-grandpa shows her what the police found. She turned pale and she hugged me tightly. The next day she replaced the window and had them put security latches on the window and the door as well. A few years passed and I finally work up the courage to ask what they found. My grandma showed me. It's a picture from the inside of my closet at night. You can see me sleeping in the photo. The date is from two days before he broke the window. That one gave me chills and scared the fuck out of me because I think kids are so little. They're like adults, but smaller because they're not as old. Holy shit, that's literally what a child is. I just explained what a child is. The idea that somebody is in your house, in your space, with access to your kids, you know, that's very scary to me. Um, okay, I have one more for you guys. This is actually a really wholesome and heartwarming ghost story. I found it on the random board of 4chan, and it's really, really sweet. Um, it kind of made me happy. It made me miss my grandma. I want, like, a big hug now, but it's also very scary. About six years ago, I was on my way home from the movies. There was a bad storm that night. It was rainy and windy as fuck. I swerved to avoid a fallen tree branch, just barely clipped it with my left rear tire and my tire blew. I pulled over and turned on the hazard lights and got out to inspect the damage. It was raining so hard, it felt like at a water park under one of those huge dump buckets. I opened the trunk. The spare was fucking flat. Thanks a whole fucking lot, Dad. No cell phone, because I live in a redneck-ass area with no reception. See a house a couple lights on about an eighth of a mile down the road, and I just start walking. The house looks as old as Abe Lincoln, but not too creepy, because as I said, that area was redneck as hell, and most houses are old as shit. I knock on the door, and a little old lady answers. I tell her about the car trouble, and I ask to use the phone, and she points me to the kitchen. I pick up the phone and call for a tow, hang up, and then receive the best hot chocolate of my life from the little old lady. I see the tow truck drive past the house towards the car about half an hour later. I thank the old lady and I say goodbye and I walk down the road to my car. The car gets hooked up and the tow truck guy drives me and my crippled car home. I get the tire and spare replaced first thing the next morning. I decide to go back and thank the old lady. But the house was gone. I was 100% sure I was in the right spot, but there was nothing but an old stone chimney. No walls, no foundation, no wood, nothing but a chimney and one of those historic landmark signs. Evidently, the house that was in that spot was an old bed and breakfast for travelers. According to the landmark sign, it burnt down in 1927. The B&B's owner, a little old lady by the name of Mabel, was trapped inside and burnt to death. So thank you, Mabel. I wish there was more people like you. And people's in air quotes because (laughs) 
ghosts aren't people or well aren't people anymore that's it for today's episode of the horror comedy podcast if you like these short horror stories tune in every wednesday we'll be sharing these with you if you have any horror stories please send them to us anything about ghosts cryptids stalkers you know the scariest thing that's ever happened to you send that shit to me you can reach us at the horror comedy podcast at gmail.com. You can DM us on Instagram at THC podcast. You can also find us at thcpodcast.squarespace.com. Don't forget to like, rate, subscribe, all of that sort of thing. We're on Apple now, so that's really exciting. We'll be coming to Spotify, Google, Stitcher, all that stuff by the end of this week. Don't forget to drink water, you guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you Sunday for a full episode. I'd like to thank Patrick D'Ortega for letting us use his theme song. You can check him out at patrickdiortega.com. Also got some sound effects from Sound Effects and More on YouTube, Sound Bible, and freesfx.co.uk. All of our stories were found on 4chan and the book We Should Have Left Well Enough Alone by Ronald Malfi.